Good morning again. I just want to say, good morning. I just want to say that uh, it's just an awesome thing to sit in front down here and listen to all you guys behind me singing praises to the Lord. Uh, this is pretty cool. It's a little fuller in the second service than it is in the first, so a little louder here. This morning we're reading from Luke 15, verses 17 to 32. You can either find it in your Bible. If you haven't downloaded the LCC app, it's also in there, so it's a great app. I'd, I'd highly recommend that. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. As we open the word together this morning, <clears throat> depending on where you're at, whether you're rejoicing or celebrating, or maybe it's a, it's a season of just mourning. And, and throughout life, we have these ups and downs. And as we've been looking at this, this passage in Luke 15 and, and the different audience that's before Jesus, he masterfully shares this, this parable, this story to engage and, and invite them into this experience. And as we go through life, we have these experiences. And, and at times, maybe you've said or thought something similar. Maybe it's these exact words. If I could only get back there, everything would be all right. If I could only get back there. And maybe the there is, is your younger years, or maybe it's your favorite 
mountain, you're snowboarding or skiing, or maybe it's the, the perfect wave in Hawaii, or maybe it's you're mountain biking and you, you don't bonk and you have the energy to keep climbing before e-bikes, you know, you don't have the electric bike as people are passing you with the push of a button. I don't know what it is, but maybe you're in the middle of that tense conversation with a spouse or a boss and you're, you're, your mind goes, man, I want to escape. I want to be somewhere else. And it's this thought and it's this idea that Jesus really brings to the forefront as we've been looking at this passage, probably one of the most famous stories of all the stories Jesus tells. And it's titled in our, in our Bible, The Prodigal Son, which we, we kind of had fun with two weeks ago when I, when I shared first on, on the prodigal because the word prodigal means lavish. And, and the son wanted this lavish experience, but really it's a story of God's grace and how he lavishes his grace and his love on individuals and how that individually will change us but collectively transforms our relationships with one another and, and creates this new community. And today we're looking at how Jesus brilliantly ties this story into the main idea of the entire Bible, which is the exile, the homecoming, the longing to be home after being homeless or wandering or, or cut off. The 20th century philosopher Martin Heidegger believed all human beings were characterized by unheimlich, that's, that's German, okay? So if you speak German, you, you got me. I don't speak it, obviously. The definition is what we're getting at here. It means to be alienated, to feel that we're not really home in this world, that we're in a world that's not consistent with our deepest desires, this world is not consistent with that deepest longing. There's nothing here that can truly satisfy us the way we're longing to be satisfied. If we're a product of this material universe, then why would we continue to feel this unsettling, homeless longing for home? And these profound questions are really addressed here in this simple story, which continues every time I come back to it. There's a new angle we can look at and get this aha of God's love and grace. It's like a diamond, and every time you turn it, a new ray of light shines forth a brand new color you didn't see before. So as we see, under these three points, our human condition, secondly, God's costly solution to our human condition, and thirdly, the new communion, the new communion that we have with God and others. And as we look at our human condition, we see first the theme of God's word to us. The theme of exile or homecoming, we see in Genesis, it talks about the beginnings and we're made male and female in the image of God to have a relationship with God first and the experience with God in the garden where he creates this perfect backdrop to work and create and it's home it's a place that fits and suits us it it suits our deepest desires and our needs there's there's water there's fruit there's food there's animals in the garden of god there was god's infinite beauty and that beauty satisfied all of our sensories of the soul there's there's places like Yosemite Valley, where I've yet to meet someone that's like, that's disgusting. Why would you ever go, go there? Like people fly all over the world to look at rocks and trees and a stream. But it's in 
the setting of Yosemite that people are like, that's amazing. That sheer half, it's like a dome, but half of it. We'll call it half dome. Like I can't stop looking at it. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's really just a rock. Because I personally enjoy surfing at the rock or wishing I was surfing in Hawaii, right? Where there's rocks under me creating those perfect waves or, or coral. But the, the deepest desire we have to cultivate, to create the counsel of God, all of him with all of us and not any fear of being found out for having sin that he knows about. His arms around us, the love of God, satisfying that infinite need of love and affirmation. In all of those things, we would be at home. According to scripture, the same thing happened with Adam and Eve happens with the prodigal son. The son who's looking for that lavish and love, but he wants to acquire it on his own terms. He doesn't want to stay under the authority of his father at home. Similarly, Adam and Eve didn't want to stay under the authority of their heavenly father. They wanted to eat the one fruit. God said no. And they said, yes, I'm going to do it my way. And so ever since then, they felt and we've felt collectively as a human race, this exile, this hunger, this desire for satisfying this need that we have, but we can't satisfy it. It's always there. And it's the sense, which is a powerful sense that Jesus is saying, everyone has this longing. Everyone has this need where you're wandering in a world that no longer fits your deepest longings. I was thinking about this idea and in, in the, the picture often comes to my mind of, of this quaint uh, beach house that, that was a day beach house that was added on and, and it was actually um, my, my wife's grandfather grew up in this house, my wife's mom grew up in this house and their whole family would go and they'd spend summers growing up. They would just disappear and so when she graduated and I was like, perfect, now I can, I can maybe date her and then she's graduating, she disappeared to the beach house all summer long. So I was like, man, one day it'd be great. I could go to this beach house and we spent our summers there and, and our kids and, and a honeymoon and a bunch of other family members spent so much time at this beach house and then um, Jenna's grandma passed away and, and it had to be sold because sometimes that's what happens. And, and so um, we went back to the beach house years later and we were down there and we had a couple hours. We we're near the in Newport Beach on Balboa Island. And we went back and the beach house was gone. And in its place was this four story under construction monstrosity. And you're just always taken back by, oh, how could they? But it's not the memories, it's not the building, it's, it's that deep-seated longing for what that represented, being around a table with family, being an, invited into this place where you, you had this glimpse of, this kind of feels like home. And that's what made that so special. And many of you probably have had those memories, whether it's on a ski slope or around a table, and, and you're like, man, this, this just is so good. It kind of feels like home, right? And that's why they say it's like a slice of heaven on earth. And, and for us, it, it satisfied a lot of that craving. It, family's there, the beach is there, there's a lot of fun, and there's food. So all that took place. But you can't go there. I, I can't take my wife to 303 Ruby because, not just because the house is gone, but because it's that time and that place. It doesn't satisfy. It just brings us to the edge of, yeah, you were meant for that, but perfectly. And this is just a slice. This is just an image of what's to come. And we do the same things every time we f try and find 
comfort and, and look for satisfaction in the things of the world. And we remember a time where there was no death, no suffering. At least we try and, and, and imagine what it could be like. But we don't actually remember it because we weren't really there. But we try and not talk about death, right? We try and don't, don't say the S word. Don't say suffering. We're Americans. We don't suffer. We just go buy more or we eat more or we, we put on nicer, warmer wool clothes. So we're, we have heated jackets. You put a battery in it. Now we're, we don't suffer in America. Why would you say that word? Like we don't think about that so it doesn't exist. The reality is people that think long enough and hard enough acknowledge this this longing, and they, put, they try and put words to it, but it only leaves us with the same empty reality. There's no solution. Karl Marx says we're alienated economically. Freud said that we're alienated physiologically. Emily Durkheim, another philosopher, said we're alienated sociologically. Martin Heidegger said we're alienated existentially. It's always pointing back to we're an exile. We're longing for home, but we're not satisfied here. And scripture says, yes, we've been telling you it happened in the garden. That's where it all fell apart. But God promised to redeem and restore and bring things back as they once were. And so none of these philosophical views help. They just bring you to the edge and, and, and point out, yes, you're on the chasm separated from the one that created you for that relationship, for that experience. None of those go deep enough because the profoundly separation that we have and the deep separation from God, there's nothing that can fix that except for God's costly solution. It's the answer to the human problem. So second, our God, we see God's costly solution, this reality we come to that we're longing for home. Okay, we get that, Brandon, but what are we gonna do about it? Well, Jesus has this audience of Pharisee religious people and irreligious tax collectors and he's telling them, here's the problem, now that you both recognize, whether you're trying to get my love because of doing good works by religion, that's not gonna happen, because you're just gonna get, trying to get the things of God, which represents the story, the older brother's trying to get the father's things, but not the father's heart. The younger brother tried to, got the fa- tried to get the father's things by his own works, apart from the father, and realized that left him just as empty, so he came back. Jesus explains what can be done. One of the main controversies we see in this parable is when the younger brother comes back, God apparently just welcomes him home. And there's no consequence. There's no atoning sacrifice. He just says, you're home. Let's kill the calf. Let's celebrate. You were dead. Now you're alive. Historically, Christianity has always said Jesus has to die on the cross for our sins. Look at the evil in the world. Look at what we've done to each other. Look at what... We've done to God. We've rebelled, therefore God cannot welcome us home until he first atones for our sin, pays for our sin that separates us from God. And then once that sacrifice has been made, thank you Jesus for dying on the cross for our sins, now we're welcomed home. But there's a great cost that has to be paid. But in this story, it seems like he just sidesteps that. Isn't isn't this a problem? And so God just receives sinners. The father doesn't even mention the sin. He just says, you're back, let's kill the calf. Here's a robe, here's a ring, here's shoes on your feet. You're not a slave, you're my son, come. Let's celebrate. It's fitting for us to celebrate. Which I've never seen a balloon and felt depression. I've always seen a balloon, like there's a party, there's something going on. My daughter in our basketball practices told me, dad, you're, you're not a good coach, it's not fun. 
So I got a balloon and I said, all right, kids, we're going to tie this to your, to, your, to your feet and you're going to dribble around and pop each other's balloons. You would never have seen the best basketball dribblers because they were having fun. I was like, wow, who would have thought balloons could do that? And the parents loved it. The kids loved it. We had a great time. But for us to come home to the Father, for us to experience the joy, it seems like often enough there has to be pain and suffering and payment for that sin. But this story, the Father just jumps right to celebrating, it seems, at face value. But if you think about it, we're at the third story and the end of the third point of Jesus' sermon. Weeks ago, we started Luke 15, and, and, and you guys, many of you probably weren't here, um, so I want to just give you the context. So Jesus starts into this story, into his three-part sermon by telling first of a sheep that's lost and immediately the shepherd leaves the 99 and finds the one lost sheep. Then he tells with knowingly tax collectors, money conscious people, a coin has gone missing and immediately the crowd would have been like, yeah, they go find the coin. No one's just like, you know, this isn't like a penny in America these days. You don't leave that on the ground. You go look for it. Where's that coin? And then he gets to the third point in his sermon in the end of it, but the beginning of the third point, he's saying there's a son that's gone lost. There's a son that's gone lost, and yet no one goes out. No one goes out to bring him home. No one goes searching for him. And when you read it all the way through, you feel the tension. And the, the early listeners it was written to would have just completely been aghast because they knew. Why isn't anyone going out after the younger brother who left. Jesus does this deliberately to force them and us to ask the question, who should have gone out? And, and if, you're, if you're reading this, you're probably, either you didn't acknowledge it or it was a slight, like, that's weird. Anyways, the older brother's super frustrated and the dad's like, hey, we had to celebrate and the story ends. And you're like, that's kind of weird too. The reason both are a little off is because in that culture, everyone would have answered the question, who should have gone out? And they all would have unanimously said, it's the older brother's job. See, the older brother, two weeks ago I shared, got two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger brother got a third of the inheritance. The older brother getting the larger share of the inheritance, it was his job to keep the family together. So he goes out to find his younger brother is what he should have done because he had the resources to spare no expense to bring the younger brother back home. That's what the true older brother would have done. But in this story, the younger brother gets an older brother who doesn't leave, who stays home. A true older brother would have said, Father, my younger brother has played the fool and his life is in ruins, but I will go, I will find him, and I will bring him back when I find him. And I will spare no expense to keep the family together. Did you hear that? That's the key. It was the older brother's role and it was the older brother's expense. When the father at the very end of the parable goes out to the older brother and says, my son, you've always been with me and everything I have is yours. He was telling him the literal truth. Everything I have is now yours. Your younger brother took a third of the inheritance. Now you have two thirds. I don't have any, I'm just here. Like I already gave you my inheritance. It's all yours. And you were responsible to go 
but you chose to stay. He had divided his property, which meant when the younger brother came back, the ring, the robe, the shoes, the fattened calf, that was all at great expense to the older brother in order for the younger to be restored. There's no way for the father to bring the younger brother back into the family except at the expense, and great expense that was to the older brother, in order to show the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that I stayed close to the law. I have been with you, and look at, it's the perfect terminology Jesus uses. At the end of 15, in verse 29, he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed. He, he's righteous. He doesn't need forgiveness. He's perfect, he's saying. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes and you killed the fattened calf for him. He doesn't even acknowledge him as his own brother. He's so self-righteous. You see it yet? If we're the prodigal son, if we, the collective human race, are the prodigal son, we need a true older brother. There's no way for the father to bring us back to the family, to bring us back home and readopt us and accept us, clothe us, unless there's the expense of the true older brother. And what kind of true older brother do we need? We don't need someone who just gives us a jacket or some shoes or a hot dog. We need someone because we have this infinite debt, this cosmic debt. We've sinned against God and other people. We need someone who's going to take care of that sin for us and restore us and give us a new life. And when we see that it's Jesus and we experience Christ's love as our true older brother who spared no expense searching for and finding us, we will be moved to look for lost people the same way. When we've experienced God's love flowing to us and it goes through us, then we will continue to do exactly what Jesus did as his love flowed from him to us who was lost and spared no expense. He drank the cup of eternal justice so that we could receive the cup at the festival, the wedding feast of the Lamb, joyfully in the Father's feast. You see, we have a perfect older brother who left heaven in all of its riches and spared no expense to search for and save the lost. The father could not bring us back. He couldn't bring any of us back except at the expense of the true older brother. And he became an exile for us. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This experience was the ultimate exile, the ultimate separation from God in our place so he could bring us, the prodigal brothers and sisters, home. And what difference does that experience make? You see, it's not, and it never has been, a set of rules. God shows up to a random dude and says, walk with me. That's an experience. And tell your wife, you're leaving your family, your friends, and you're just going to go. i got a place for you. It's this experience with God. He's like, all right, let's go. That was Abram. And God said, through you, the whole world's going to be blessed. He didn't say just a people. He said there's going to be a people that's purpose is a blessing. And those people are the same Pharisees who are trying to do good. They were so focused on doing right and doing good. And the tax collectors and the sinners knew they were far away from God, but they didn't have any way to get back. They were lost. And Jesus says, look, I've set on this rescue mission 
And here's the great cost of what I'm gonna do to pay for your human condition. What difference does that make? Not only in ancient times, but today, what is the main way in which you have a homecoming, which your family is reunited? What do you do? You eat. That's what you celebrate and you eat and you have a meal together. And so we see this, this new communion that's celebrated. We celebrate the new communion after we acknowledge the human condition and, the, and God's cost that he spared no expense to save us. So his costly solution, and lastly, it's celebrating the new communion. There is no homecoming. There is no family reunion without a meal. In this ancient times, there was a meal that would literally start in the afternoon or the evening once it got dark, and that would go on and on and on until you went to bed. You know why? Because the family meal was not only the ultimate symbol of, but it was the main way to practice an intimate, flourishing, healthy family and human community. For so long, our meals were viewed as kind of like, oh man, I guess my body's slowing down. I need to eat. Okay, where's In-N-Out, Taco Bell, or McDonald's? Like, where are we closest to? We'll just throw some tacos in the back. Kids munch on it. Try not to get so dirty. And it's so quick and it's rushed. And we have very little nourishment. We have no communication and there's nothing shared emotionally, physically. It's just, let's just get the food in us and go. And it's so crazy when you think about how our culture has shifted to where these, there's these hangouts. You go to restaurants and there's a lot of clear open space where sit down and eat and drink and let's just have community. Let's, let's share information. Let's, let's share ideas because always... When you think about it long enough, you realize, well, we always want that communal relationship. We always needed this. We're, we're homesick and we're in exile. And because it's the meal that you really feel at home, there your body is getting what it needs, good food, your soul, your heart is getting laughter and information and support and your, and your relationship. It's this physical, emotional, spiritual, relational flourishing around a meal and that, that's why he said, kill the fattened calf. We're getting the whole town. We're getting all the family together. My son was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. We have to celebrate at the expense of the older brother. And this, Jesus tells this story because, again, it's the summary of the whole Bible as he talks about in Revelation and prophetic literature saying, yeah, the world's going to fall apart and it's going to end. As believers, we... We're eagerly waiting because that means Jesus is coming back for us. And as we share this communion, we're reminded that Jesus said, there's an ultimate feast coming one day. It's not just that you like food. It's I made you to desire a feast with your family. And I'm going to bring you back, lost sons and daughters. In Isaiah 25, he says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. You guys catch that? Jesus did not say there's a people or there's a religion. He said, no, it's one God and I'm gonna do this for everyone who believes, all people. It's this vision of the whole world 
being reconciled to the one God who made them. And it was never, it was never exclusive. It was always inclusive. We want everybody, it's for all people of all tribes, of all tongues, of all time to come to this banquet where all of the tears are are wiped away and it's the best food, the best wine on the highest mountain. And in Matthew 19, Jesus says, I will tell you the truth that this renewal of all things When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, 12 disciples, apostles. Matthew 8, 11 says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's your future, Christian. That's your future, believer. The greatest feast, the greatest time of fellowship, the greatest sense of well-being, you've ever spiritually, emotionally, physically had. And when we think about it, when we see Jesus as our true older brother, no matter what fear, no matter how much anxiety or, or uncertain times we're facing, we have the confidence that that's where our future is. That's where we have a seat at the table. What would it be like if that was real to us? We would be able to endure anything and everything because we know that's where our future lies. We'd have this quiet confidence. And you think about the Lord's Supper. Every time we gather on Sunday, we we share the Lord's Supper. We have the little bit of, of bread representing Christ's body and the cup, the new covenant, because it's a taste which every time I, I come to communion, some of you are like, man, he goes long because it's all about Jesus coming and it's all about the feast. And he's saying, here's the appetizer. You get a taste of what I've done. I've redeemed you, I've restored you. It's time to celebrate because everything that we've broken and, and cried about and hurt over, he's gonna come and heal and wipe away the tears and he's gonna restore everything. And that's where I wanna be, at that table celebrating that feast. And I want as many people there as possible because Jesus said the whole world needs to come. And so we have to keep our eyes up, fixed on heaven and focused on those who've yet to hear and say, you gotta come to the feast. You are lost, you are dead. I know God's gonna give you new life. He's, he's, he's come to find you. Just come, you gotta, there's a seat for you. Come sit at the table. He's prepared it all for you. And the best part, when we have those glimpses at our feasts, there's always dishes to be done. There's no dishes at this feast. He's prepared it all and he'll clean it all up. There's no arguing. I I prepared the meal, you gotta clean the dishes. There's no, I did the dishes the last four nights. It's the celebration, you're with family. But are we that focused on the feast and that celebration? Or are we distracted by the the causes and cares and anxiety and uncertainty of this world? As we think about what Jesus is saying here, if you want to really be shaped by my salvation, if you want to share life together, if you want this experience, if you want this relationship, this is my mission. It's the bread and the cup. That's why I'm going to the cross to finish it for you so you can go share that positive, that hope, that joy of the gospel, certain that it's true for you because I've paid the price for you and the person you're sharing the gospel to. My love has flown through you to them. Don't stop it as the Jews did. Don't stop it as the Pharisees did. Jesus is saying my love's supposed to flow to you and then through you to those around you. That's the gospel. 
And it's this communal experience where you're gonna get handed the elements if you haven't already. And I didn't give them to you. It was a brother or sister in Christ. And that's the glimpse of the feast. You're gonna be around brothers and sisters in Christ celebrating what Christ has done through you. And so the question is, as we reflect before we head into communion, it's, it's hard not to find yourself in the story as a prodigal who's yet to come home. You're looking for that love. You're looking for that joy and that satisfaction. You thought the world had a quicker, easier, better option than the Father. We've all been there to some degree. And it's the Father's heart that welcomes you home and says, I took care of everything for you. There's a seat right here. Here's a robe, here's shoes. You're my son. And as we embrace that, may we always as we grow older with the Lord, have that heart welcoming the prodigals that come home, looking for that love that's only found with God. And as the older brother, how did he get that way? It's easy to get ornery and proud when it's, oh, well, it's, it's my sin and I can hide it with pride, jealousy, or, or selfishness. And it's easy to hide our shortcomings. So may we guard our hearts and always welcome those sinners who are running to a savior home and celebrate that Jesus saved another one. Because Jesus says, my son, literally my child, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, see the father puts it back on him and says, no, he's your brother. Don't think of yourself as better than him. Realize you're just as lost as he is. You wanted the father's things. You never were willing to seek the Father's heart. So as we go into communion, first, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to sit here right here and say, I believe. And put your hand up and just say, hey, I believe. I, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And publicly, I'm gonna say, hey, I need Jesus to save me. I need the true older brother to pay the price for my sin and bring me back to the Father. I need that. I believe that. And if that's you, just raise your hand. I'm going to pray, and you can just pray after me. Nothing special in the words, just helping you confess your sin and acknowledge you need Jesus. And if, if that's most of us in the room, our experience has been probably a process. And maybe you're going, wow, I never thought about, never thought about that way before. I guess I did need Jesus. And, and I guess it does cost him a lot. And maybe... You, you're, you're seeking the Father, or maybe you've been following Jesus for a while and it's given you a new perspective and a new appreciation for what he saved you from and also given you an excitement for what he saved you for to share that love with others around you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that here in this place we get to be reminded as a, as a family of brothers and sisters that you've brought together, that you've saved, Lord, for yourself. And we pray those who are seeking, those who are questioning maybe, that you'd answer that question and you'd reveal yourself as their savior. That they would simply say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. I believe that you died and rose again to remove my sin and give me a new life. And Lord, for, for those that have said that prayer and those that have been following you, may you continue to renew a heart of steadfast love fixed on you, the mind focused on you that would be able to extend that love that 
we've received flowing to us through Jesus, and we'd be able to allow that love to flow through us to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, if you said that prayer, we invite you to come forward for prayer at the end. Uh, We'd love to walk with you through that decision and you follow Christ. Now we're going to give you a minute to talk with the Lord and and really thank him for saving you and saving you a seat at the table uh, during communion. And I'll come back up and, and close this.